All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Number 759, Ernest Miranda, Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade. Quite often, in many of our most famous decisions, are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN and the National Constitution Center's Landmark Cases, our series exploring 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Tonight's case is Schenck versus the United States. It's a case from 1919 involving freedom of speech around World War I. It also gave rise to two of the Supreme Court's most quoted phrases, falsely shouting fire in a theater and clear and present danger. Let me introduce our two guests who will be with us throughout the night to tell us more about this interesting case, to take your calls and your questions. Beverly Gage is a history professor at Yale University specializing in 20th century American history. She's the author of The Day Wall Street Exploded, A Story of America in Its First Age of Terrorism. Welcome to our program. And Tom Goldstein is a Supreme Court attorney who's argued many cases before the court. He's also the co-founder and publisher of SCOTUS blog. And Tom, I want to start with you. So tell our audience what's really at the heart of the Schenck case. Well, Schenck is so important because it's our first exposure to the Supreme Court saying that it was going to take the First Amendment right of free speech seriously. Uh, The Constitution has been around for a long time, and for a century, the Bill of Rights, including the First Amendment, didn't have a lot of effect in Americans' lives. But Schenck was a very serious test of the question of whether you could say things that were hostile to the government and might be constitutionally protected. Now, he doesn't get much protection in the end, but it is the beginning of the story of the First Amendment right of free speech. Now, we always talk at the beginning of these about famous names, and the Schenck case, Beverly Gage, really only has one, and that's one of the justices, Oliver Wendell Holmes. What makes him famous? Give us a little capsule biography of him. Right. Schenck himself is, of course, uh, as we'll see, uh, not a very famous person, but Oliver Wendell Holmes is really one of the towering figures of American jurisprudence and in some ways of American letters. Uh, By the time the Schenck case comes around, he's really the grand old man of the Supreme Court. So he's really a 19th century guy. He was in the Civil War um, and he's been at the Supreme Court a a long time. One of the remarkable things Uh, that happens in 1919 is that though he's been around a long time, he's still changing his mind. He's still coming up with new ideas. Well, Mr. Schenck is is so much lost to history that we were not able to find a photograph, (laughs) despite trying every possible resource. So we'll have to imagine what he looked like in 1919 as this case was coming to the Supreme Court tonight. Uh, It all centers around the Espionage Act, which was passed in 1917. What did the Espionage Act do? Well, the Espionage Act was a response to real concerns uh, in kind of the beginning of the Red Scare at the beginning of World War I that there was going to be a real disruption in the United States' ability to mobilize the military. And so the Espionage Act is later augmented by the Sedition Act, which got even tougher, basically 
made it illegal to do things that might uh, interfere with the mobilization of troops, and that's the statute under which he was charged and prosecuted. And so if you were looking for a picture, a picture of him, it might have been his mugshot because he gets convicted. Well, it's, people might really be surprised to know that this law, which is 100 years old, is still in force today. In fact, there's some famous names in history and some famous contemporary names who have been prosecuted under the law. And let me show you some of those. They include Eugene B. Debs, who was, uh, was prosecuted shortly after Mr. Shank was, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, the famous Cold War case from 1950, and then some more modern cases. Daniel Ellsberg, who uh, was a protester of the Vietnam War, and more recently, Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning in 2010, and Edward Snowden prosecuted under 2013. But you say the law's been augmented and changed, so under different provisions for some of these. That's exactly right. So the Supreme Court has changed its mind about some of the provisions of the Espionage Act over time, and we can talk about that. And Congress has updated it some, pared it back some. But the core of it, uh, people would be a little bit surprised, I think, to know that there still are laws on the books that really do forcefully deal with the question of interfering with the United States' ability to mobilize in times of war. So, Beverly Gage, we're going to turn to you to set the stage for us about the period in which this case arose. But we're going to do that with a little bit of video. We want to show people some protests, uh, songs, and uh, pictures from America really at the dawn of the new century as the, this country was making its, its decision about whether or not it was going to be involved in the great European war. Let's watch. I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. I brought him up to be my pride and joy. Who dares to place a musket on his Beverly Gage, Woodrow Wilson was president and was being courted very strongly by our allies to, to help uh, them end the war in Europe. How contentious was this decision for him here at home? World War I was possibly the most contentious war in American history in terms of the amount of debate that went into the decision about whether or not the United States was going to be involved in the war at all. The war had started in Europe in the summer of 1914, um, and from the first, certainly by 1915, it's a real bloodbath. Um, so in some basic sense, many Americans look over and say, we do not want to be involved in that. Millions of people um, are killed in the First World War. And so many Americans simply don't want to be involved, but there are also a number of other things in play. So the United States has a big immigrant population at this point, many Irish and German citizens and uh, non-naturalized residents don't want to be involved because they don't want to fight either against Germany or on behalf of England. A lot of radicals in the United States are saying this is just a capitalist war or this is a war for empire. They don't want to be involved. Uh, many women, you saw uh, female protesters there, are saying that you know, there have to be better ways and there's a very powerful 
uh, women's pacifist movement in the United States. So you've got all of these different constituencies, none of whom want to be involved in the war. And Woodrow Wilson himself actually runs for president um, in 1916 for his second term, saying, I'm keeping you out of war. The phrase of his supporters was, he kept us out of war. It's one of the reasons that he is reelected. And then pretty soon in 1917, that decision is reversed. By the way, it's also a time when women, if they were involved in anti-war protests, still didn't have the right to vote in the United States. That's right. And there was a lot of political organizing going on among women. Isn't that correct in that time? That's right. Yeah. And one of the things that a lot of people are sort of weighing and measuring as the United States is debating whether or not to get involved in this war is what it's going to mean for various causes. So some women think that if we enter the war, we support the war effort, we show that we can support our soldiers, that will be a really good case for suffrage. Uh, many other women say, you know, A, the war is going to be a bloodbath. B, if we do this, it's actually going to empower, you know, the most reactionary forces in the United States. And therefore, all of these progressive reforms, including suffrage, are going to fall by the wayside. As it turns out, some things succeed, some things fail. But there's a really long, long debate, two and a half years worth of debate uh, before the United States is actually in the war. We want to invite you to be part of this conversation tonight. Two ways you can do it are by Twitter, and you can uh, tweet us at C-SPAN and use the hashtag Landmark Cases. Or you can join the conversation happening on Facebook, C-SPAN's Facebook page. And later on, I'll tell you how you can dial in and make a phone call to our program. But on Facebook... Mike Lozano asked, didn't this case occur in the era of progressive socialist revolution and a leftist bombing campaign? So there are a couple of pieces of context there that I do think are really important. So one is that this is sort of the tail end of the progressive era, maybe in some ways the height of the progressive era. So you've got a lot of political ferment in the United States, and it's really the peak of socialist organizing in the United States. So in 1912, Eugene Debs had run for president and he had gotten almost a million votes, so about 6% of the vote. Uh, So you've got a lot of radical groups, some of which are uh, very um, reform-minded and some of which are more revolution-minded. And so there are also several bombings during this period in the United States, sometimes aimed at the government, sometimes aimed at major capitalists. One of the most famous ones related to the First World War was the Preparedness Day bombing that had happened in San Francisco uh, in the summer of 1916, in which a bomb went off on a sort of mobilization parade for the war. And a labor radical named Tom Mooney ended up being convicted in a very famous and very uh, controversial trial at the time. Well, Tom uh, Goldstein gave us a a quick sketch of the Espionage Act, uh, but What was the context in which Congress felt it had to pass the act? Right. So in some ways, all of this debate and controversy about the war meant that when the United States decided to enter the war in April 1917, one of the big questions was, would the American people actually participate in this? Um, And the government is pretty small at this point. There isn't a very large standing military, although you've had some mobilization in 1915 and 1916. So you have a big sort of administrative question. How are we actually going to raise an army and how are we going to 
convince people to participate. Um, and then you have the more sort of repressive side of that, which is how are we going to silence the voices that have been so powerful already in protesting the war? Um, a lot of people come on board the moment that the war uh, begins, that the United States enters the war. So a lot of progressive reformers who have been saying, mm, this doesn't seem like a very good idea. Once war is declared, they kind of get on board um, and they silence themselves. But radical groups, the Socialist Party in particular, the industrial workers of the world, um, some members of anarchist organizations continue to protest the war. And so then the question becomes, um, how are we going to uh, how are we going to control that? And the Espionage Act is one of those first attempts. Did it have real teeth? It did have real teeth. I mean, in some ways, the Espionage Act, which is passed pretty quickly after the United States enters the war, is a somewhat limited law. So it's really aimed at people who are trying to disrupt uh, mobilization for the war, and in particular, who are trying to disrupt the draft. So 1917 brings really the first major federal draft in American history. You'd had a draft during the Civil War, um, but this is uh, national mobilization, and the draft is hugely controversial. Congress actually debates it for quite a long time. And again, there's concern, how are we going to get these millions of young men to actually show up, to actually register? Can we do this? Um, and, uh, and a lot of people are saying, well, we need to... We need to get control of the situation. And Wilson wanted to go, I think, even further. There were provisions of the bill that he wanted that would have really restricted the press directly. So there, you can, it gives you an example of how much they really did want to clamp down on dissent. I think the Germans really were gambling that we wouldn't be able to mobilize. And so there was a real concern in the country and the administration that socialist organizations would be tied to uh, non-allies in Europe and would undermine the mobilization of the military. There was a real sense that it could affect winning or losing the war. Well, here's a comment from Kara Blackburn on Facebook who writes, a draft into military service is absolutely the same as involuntary servitude. What does free speech matter if your government can force you to serve and possibly die? If the war was worth fighting for, people will volunteer to support it. I'm far from socialist, but Shank was right about that, and she, he should have been able to say so. And that was Shank's argument. So just gives us a nice lead-in to exactly what happened, and that is Shank was a leader of the Socialist Party in Pennsylvania, and he sent out uh, with the party 15,000 uh, leaflets to uh, young men who were subject to the draft and said, this is involuntary servitude, you ought to say no. Well, one of the things that people were encouraged to do during this was to watch their neighbors, to spy on their neighbors and report it into authorities whether if they were in fact uh, trying to subjugate the draft. And our history books say that 2,000 people were actually prosecuted under this law, and 900 went to prison. When I was reading that, I was thinking, where are the parallels and contrasts to the post-9-11 America? Well, I think that you saw a lot in the courts that are direct parallels, and that is, as we discuss the cases, you'll see that when this issue first gets to the Supreme Court in 1919, the justices are very, very sympathetic and pretty darn supportive of the administration and uh, prosecutions under the act. And then as the war goes on and they see the scope of these prosecutions, they become more and more reticent about it. And the same thing happened in the courts in the post 9-11 world. When uh, the Bush administration first took its cases to the U.S. Supreme Court, it just won and won and won. 
And as the war on terror, as it's called, lasted longer and longer, the administration started to lose because the judiciary gets the sense that this state of war is really never going to end. And while it's willing to limit civil liberties for the period of the war, and that's at the heart of Schenck, uh, it's got to come to an end at some point. Of course, the administration was the chief propagandist, so we're, we're the chief casemaker for America's involvement in the war. And in our next piece of video, we're going to travel to the Woodrow Wilson House here in Washington, D.C., to learn more about the president's efforts to encourage people to support the war effort. While Charles Schenck and the Socialist Party of the United States were trying to encourage people to resist conscription, uh, President Wilson and his administration, including the Committee on Public Information that he had formed, were working to support the war effort. The Committee on Public Information developed over 1,500 different designs for posters and other informational materials that were intended to be widespread throughout the public spaces. One of the posters is this spectacular work of art called Americans All, and it captures an important aspect of uh, the United States in this era, in which we think of ourselves as a nation of immigrants, but that was never more true than in the 1910s. Um, in fact, that was the era in which fully a third of Americans were either born in another country or the children of someone who was born in another country. This poster shows that concern in that it lists here the honor roll of those who are buying liberty bonds, and you can see the names that are used are uh, those of people of dif different ethnic backgrounds, uh, making the point that Americans from all around the world, people who've immigrated from other countries, are Americans joined together in this war effort. The largest immigrant group in America in this era were German immigrants and their descendants. So now let me show another poster that's from our collection from this era that is a bit more intense and I think helps set the scene for uh, the context in which Charles Schenck was uh, undertaking to uh, resist conscription. The Hun is a derogatory term used for Germans um, who were one of our principal enemies. And so here you have a really striking, I'd say horrifying image of a German soldier characterized as a Hun. You recognize the German Imperial Army helmet and literally blood on the, blood on the blade and fingers of the soldier as he approaches. Beverly Gage, what else would you like us to know about this period? Well, I think one thing that you can see from looking at those posters are some of the anxieties that are really present at this time. You know, how are we going to get all of these people from all of these different places to act in a single way as Americans to fight this deeply unpopular war? Right, that is the great, uh, the great question of the age. And it's a very important moment for the history of propaganda. Actually, this is one of the first moments that the federal government very explicitly enters into a, a kind of modern propaganda effort. Um, I think the other thing that's really important to note is while we're going to be talking a lot about the Espionage Act, and this goes a little bit to what you were saying about the kind of post 9-11 world, the Espionage Act is this kind of dramatic example 
of something that's happening on a much more widespread basis. So you have these very particular prosecutions under this particular act, but there are all sorts of other kind of repressive campaigns, sometimes aimed at German Americans. So a lot of people don't know that Germans were actually interned in the United States during the First World War. So about 6,000 German men were taken and put into military camps during the First World War. Um, you had a lot of kind of citizen uh, vigilante attacks on Germans, sometimes on political radicals. You had a series of other laws like the sabotage laws, new immigration laws that are also aimed at this kind of containing uh, of opinion. So you've got a all of these things going on, and sometimes these are quite violent episodes. So the Espionage Act and those prosecutions are a very dramatic example, and what's great about them is that you you end up at the Supreme Court and you actually get people sitting down and seriously thinking about these issues. Um, but there's a lot of other turmoil there Once well. again, I'm hearing parallels to the post-9-11 world. Well, that's right. It was a really expansive cultural moment. The country was enormously focused on the war, And I do think it's valuable to just realize how different it was. There are a lot of things as we look at the United States today that we take for granted in the sense of what our civil liberties are, the things that we can say, the things that we expect our government will and won't do. And it was an entirely different country at that time. The the World War I, the Great War, was incredibly uh, decisive in shaping the country, in shaping Americans' attitudes. And uh, the government got away with a lot of things that it would never now. (laughs) If I could just jump in on that. So two institutions that I think really represent some of this continuity between that moment and our own moment is that it's in the World War I period when you really get the what we know as the FBI first beginning to conduct uh, political surveillance. Um, And then you also get the ACLU coming out of this moment. And those two institutions are, of course, uh, still in some ways at at, uh, loggerheads and still really shaping our debate around these issues. You are by birth a Philadelphian, and Charles Schenck was the head of the Socialist Party or part of the Socialist Party in Philadelphia. Was Philadelphia a particular hotbed of socialism? Uh, I'm not sure that Philadelphia was. I mean, socialism during this period tended to be concentrated in a couple of places. One was East Coast cities, but there was actually a very big socialist presence in the Midwest as well. So Eugene Debs, who really was the figurehead of socialism in this moment and by far the most famous national figure in the Socialist Party, he was from the Midwest. Uh, The Socialist Party's Appeal to Reason came out of Girard, Kansas. Uh, But there were also a lot of socialists in cities like Philadelphia and New York in particular, and many of them were immigrants of one sort or another. Well, we're going to travel to Philadelphia in a minute, but before we do that, uh, by camera, of course, before we do that, (laughs) we're going to tell you how you can be involved by phone with our program. And we're going to divide the lines geographically. And if you live in the eastern or central time zones, 202-748-8900 is the number to reach us here. If you live in the mountain or Pacific time zones or even farther west, Alaska or Hawaii, the number is 202-748-8901. And we welcome your participation. Again, three ways to be involved, Twitter, Facebook, and by phone. And we'll go to calls in about another 10 minutes or so. So in Philadelphia, the Socialist Party met and after voting authorized Charles Schenck to print 15,000 pamphlets that were protesting the idea of the draft. We're going to learn more about that through a collection that the National Archives has in Philadelphia. Let's watch. 
This is the flyer that was produced by Charles Schenck uh, in 1917. 15,000 copies of this were produced, and the point was to encourage men who were liable for the draft not to register. The language in this flyer is particularly fiery. It equates conscription with slavery and calls on every citizen of the United States to resist the conscription laws. Assert your rights. And here he cites several sections of the Constitution, and then he says, here in this city of Philadelphia was signed the immortal Declaration of Independence. As a citizen of the cradle of American liberty, you are doubly charged with the duty of upholding the rights of the people. And he ends this page with, are you with the forces of liberty and light or war and darkness? He continues on the other side, long live the Constitution of the United States. Wake up, America. Your liberties are in danger. Here at the bottom, he writes, exercise your rights of free speech, peaceful assemblage, and petitioning the government for a redress of grievances. Come to the headquarters of the Socialist Party, 1326 Arch Street, and sign a petition to Congress for the repeal of the Conscription Act. Help us wipe out this stain upon the Constitution. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. Well, as I read that language, he does not say avoid the draft. He's suggesting that people come and use a lawful process to sign a petition for repeal of the draft. So what was illegal about it? Well, it was intended, the government thought, and it pretty much was true, to undermine the draft. And while in modern times we think, gosh, you know, just expressing your opinion about why the draft is bad isn't such a, you know, uh, something that the government could possibly prosecute you for, it was, in the context that we've just described, a huge deal and part of a larger pattern the government and the administration was afraid of general attempts to undermine conscription, which was really essential because we had a relatively small, in this context, standing army. We really had to get young men into the army and overseas. And so this was kind of at the heart of the war effort. How powerful would an argument like this have been against people who were considering or of draft age? I was pretty powerful. So uh, one of the funny things that actually happens is that the Socialist Party, you know, it's one of the few institutions once the war it's, is declared uh, that is still opposing the war. And this is hugely successful for them. I mean, on the one hand, a lot of socialists end up in jail uh, under the Espionage Act. On the other hand, they actually attract quite a lot of new members as a result uh, first of the war and then to some degree of the Bolshevik Revolution when that happens later on in 1917. But many, many people who did not become socialists also avoided the draft. Um, if you didn't register, you could try to hide out. Um, by 1918, the country is, uh, the federal government is engaging in what they called slacker raids. So if you were not uh, registering when you were supposed to, you were considered a slacker. Um, and the federal government went and sort of rounded people up relatively indiscriminately. Um, and tried to uh, see who was actually registering and who and who wasn't. So if there were a number of people who were prosecuted under this law, how specifically did Charles Schenck make his way to the court system? What happened? Well, Schenck challenged the constitutionality of the Espionage Act of 1917, which is a, at the time a relatively unusual thing because the First Amendment, as we mentioned, doesn't have a lot of teeth at this point. And so he goes to trial. He's convicted. He in what court was the initial He's in case. federal court, and in I think it's going to be in Pennsylvania. And he then is, because he challenges the constitutionality of the law, at that time, unlike now, he could take his case straight to the Supreme Court 
alleging that it was unconstitutional. And so it set up this major challenge to a centerpiece of what the administration thought of the war effort. And so uh, it was extremely controversial at the time. It wasn't the first of the prosecutions to get to the Supreme Court, but they dismissed the very first case in the hope that they could unanimously deal with the next one. And so Shanks is the first one that the Supreme Court actually decides on the constitutionality of the Espionage Act. So I want to probe that process just a little bit more. Today, the Supreme Court might get petitions from hundreds or thousands of cases, and they go through a process of granting certiorari or granting cert to decide which of the 75 or so they're going to hear. How different was the process back then? Well, right now, there is a very limited number of times when someone can appeal directly to the Supreme Court. As you say, 99 times out of 100, they get to decide their own cases. They pick from some 7,000 different petitions. But the judiciary was smaller, the number of cases was smaller, and the number of times that the Supreme Court was required to hear a case by Congress was much higher. In the latter part of the century, the justices got pretty good at convincing Congress that they should have the ability to choose rather than having these cases foisted upon them. So it was much easier in a major constitutional challenge like this to make your way into the Supreme Court. Well, we're going to learn a lot more detail about the court itself and the, the, how the case was, uh, was heard before the court. But one thing to note, by the time it got to the court, it was 1919. Where were we in the war by that point? The war was over, right? So one of the sort of surprising things to many Americans is April 1917. You enter the war by June of 1917. The draft is up and running. But the United States is not actually engaged in a significant way in the war as a, as a military enterprise, really, till the middle of 1918. And then all of a sudden it's over in November of 1918. So you've had all this energy, all of this mass mobilization, all of these new laws, and then, boom, they're done. Um, and so a lot of those cases linger on into 1919 and 1920. And one of the questions then becomes, how do we think about ourselves? Do we think about ourselves as a country at peace? Do we still think about ourselves as a country at war? The treaties haven't been signed, but we're not engaged in active uh, military combat, except a little bit in Russia by 1919. It's time to welcome some of our callers into the discussion. We're going to begin with Glenn watching us in Freeland, Michigan. Hi, Glenn. What's your question? Thank you all very much. Um, my question is, um, well, first of all, um, I'm a First Amendment absolutist, so um, I think uh, everyone should be able to say whatever they want as long as they're not yelling fire in a crowded theater as a joke or something like that. Uh, I kind of disagree, though, with what uh, one of your other um, viewers uh, tweeted in or something like that about um, the draft being uh, forced uh, slavery or something like that, um, because theoretically, at least, uh, we were living under a rule of law republic, and everything was being done, theoretically, again, at least with um, the will of the people behind it, or at least a majority, and that's the system and everything. And I was wondering... Um, at the time, was there any kind of movement uh, similar to uh, what happened during the Vietnam War with people uh, going to Canada and uh, that kind of stuff? I, I know your guest, one of your guests alluded to um, people hiding out in this nation and that kind of thing. But uh, was there any kind of movement to actually leave, you know, if people didn't want to go along with this? Um, certainly they were... No one was being forced to stay here. They could go someplace else. Thank you, Glenn. We'll find out. Beverly Gates. 
Right. So there was. I mean, it didn't go on as long as Vietnam. So there wasn't as much time for people to really uproot their lives. But a lot of political radicals actually went to Mexico, um, anarchists in particular. And there is uh, a story. The federal government was very interested in this and what these radicals were doing in Mexico. Um, and in fact, there was one particular group who actually were planning uh, protests and then uh, uh, a bombing campaign in the United States uh, that emerged in 1918 and early 1919, who were um, draft resistors who had been hiding out in, in Mexico and thinking about all of this. Next is Ed in Danbury, Connecticut. Hi, Ed. Uh, hi. Uh, it seems to me that the uh, Shank argument was guilt by association. Uh, falsely crying fire in a crowded theater and clear and present danger are great slogans, but they uh, don't really apply to what uh, uh, Schenck did or what he, he said. And in the opinion, uh, he seemed to uh, ignore the First Amendment, which is pretty clear in terms of restrictions of no restrictions on free speech. I guess I wonder how can the Supreme Court uh, basically ignore the Constitution uh, in this case and also particularly in the Sedition Act? Okay, thanks very much. So it is really useful to put together a few different threads of the First Amendment uh, from the last two callers. One is this notion of the First Amendment being absolutist, which was uh, averted to. And the, the First Amendment says that Congress shall pass no law abridging the freedom of speech. And so it's written as if there will be no law. But what uh, Holmes says and what the Supreme Court has said is it kind of depends on the context. And that's where this notion of uh, crying fire in a crowded theater comes from. And that is, well, everybody would agree, and one of the callers did, that certainly we could prevent someone from being able to do that. And then from there, from the idea that context matters and that the First Amendment isn't absolute, the Supreme Court goes on to say, well, here are the circumstances that the government can prevent you from doing something that interferes here with the war mobilization or incites crime. And that standard has varied uh, from the justices uh, over time. And Schenck is the very first time that they announce a rule, and it is that if there is a clear and present danger. But what it doesn't really mean is that there has to be a problem right now or an immediate risk. The, the focus there of clear and present danger is just danger. And there was a danger, they thought, that it would undermine conscription. And we'll have more opportunity to talk about what the court's findings as the program progresses. You're watching C-SPAN's landmark cases. We're talking about the 1919 decision in the Schenck versus United States a freedom of the speech case, a freedom of speech case. Ian is up next in Jefferson City, Tennessee. Hi, Ian. You're on. Hello. Hi. I'd like to uh, basically address, I guess, an issue here. Um, it seems to me that within any kind of real democracy, the idea would be that um, in terms of sort of promoting public policy, that the greater idea kind of would be the thing that won out. But those ideas have to be able to get in. And this is the time, it, the, the time period of Shank that we're talking about is a time where there's a great fountain of ideas that are ready to be aired, and yet the government seems to want to close this off. I think that's a great travesty. Um, one of your speakers said that something like, you know, we had to get the troops out and we had to, to, uh, to get them rallied, which effectively, at least in this case, means that the government uh, needed to, uh, to shut down uh, the tool of one side to be able to get their idea out in order to effectively rally their troops. Okay, so that's just a comment. But my question would be to Mr. Goldberg, um, where he said that this uh, sort of opened the door for jurisprudence addressing the idea of freedom of speech um, more actively. And I'm wondering, was there 
from this point on, was there an active sort of current in the court to try and get that rectified? And also, was there, at the time, I know there's a big backlash against this sort of thing now, was there a big backlash um, at the time, and, and uh, you know, does that sort of build steam along the way? Yeah, so you would think that maybe with the birth of the First Amendment here in 1919 that there came a whole series of cases and that the Supreme Court really took the First Amendment very seriously, uh, started doing things like striking down the Espionage Act, but it actually wouldn't be the case. This is kind of the starting gun of the First Amendment, and it takes quite a long time for the First Amendment and the right of free speech to build up a lot of momentum. A couple of decades later, the Supreme Court does end up striking down one law, but they don't get around to really reversing the legal standard from Schenck until the 1960s. And then it really picks up momentum with Vietnam. It's actually another war and all of the protests that come from it that cause the Supreme Court to revisit this question of when is it that you can be critical of the government, when is it that we do have to have what you're referring to as the marketplace of ideas, and it's then that the Supreme Court most seriously takes the idea of freedom of speech. So we're talking about half a century later. For the caller, uh, was he right in describing the early teens in, in uh, the 20th century as a time of great ideas and the government trying to squelch those? I think that actually is a pretty fair characterization. So World War I and then 1919 and 1920 as well, which is known as the first Red Scare, they really are a period of deep reaction in particular against the left. So um, earlier you had had, as I said, socialist groups, anarchist groups, radical labor groups, more mainstream labor groups, progressive organizations who had been gaining a lot of ground in the United States. Um, and a lot of those groups really lose out um, from the 1917 to 1920 period. Um, it destroys a lot of those organizations. A lot of radicals are, dis are, are deported, and I think it does actually really limit the range of debate in the United States in the 1920s. And that was the point. Right. The administration really did. It was pretty transparent. They thought that this kind of advocacy would hurt the war effort, so they wanted to stop it. Malcolm is in Park Forest, Illinois. You're up next, Malcolm. Hi. Hi, how are you? Listen, I'm uh, very disturbed about what happened with those 47 legislators who uh, sent a letter to Iran when we had our president negotiating uh, a deal with them. And uh, what act does that fall under? I mean, uh, a sitting president negotiating with an enemy that sponsors terrorism, and then these 47 uh, legislators sent a letter to them telling them not to trust our president. To me, that sounds like treason or some type of act against our national security, and I think there should be hearings on that, or they should be censured in some way or, or you know, uh, prosecuted maybe even. So what do you think? So there are several laws that people think about in that context. Uh, there is the broader notion of treason. There is the Espionage Act. And there's another statute that prevents anybody else from engaging in foreign policy for the United States. But the truth of the matter is that congressional legislators, when they're doing their job, have unbelievably sweeping immunity. Uh, the Constitution and the laws really say we're not going to allow... Uh, members of the House and senators to be prosecuted for what they're doing during their job. It's called the speech and debate clause, uh, because if they're afraid of being prosecuted, then they'll be inhibited and they won't really represent the people. So while there's a lot of talk and a lot of concern and there's been this issue has arisen in the past, in general, if you're a congressperson or you're a senator, 
you can do almost anything you want when it comes to advocacy of any policy. So let's, you want to say something? Oh, I was just going to point out that this is actually, uh, in a slightly different manner, something that Woodrow Wilson ran into. He campaigned his heart out when the war came to an end uh, for the Treaty of Versailles and for the United States to enter the League of Nations. And ultimately, Congress did not see eye to eye with the president. Uh, the Republican Congress did not see eye to eye with a Democratic president. And they, they rejected his initiatives. And that's how the war uh, sort of came to an end for the United States. So let's bring a, the discussion back to the Supreme Court in 1919. The Chief Justice was Edward White. And I'm going to read the names of the other justices who served on the court, uh, in addition uh, to the one that we talked about earlier, Oliver Wendell Holmes. Joseph McKenna, William Day, Willis Van Devouter, uh, Maylon Pitney, James McReynolds, Louis Brandeis, and John Clark. Uh, the only other name that rings a bell with me is Louis Brandeis. So was this a distinguished court? Why do we not know more about the chief justice at the time? Talk about that court. Yeah, that court really does uh, decide a number of very important transitional questions in American law. We are still, in a sense, in the era that you've discussed in one of the earlier programs, the Lochner era, in which the Supreme Court is recognizing a broader set of rights for example, the liberty of contract, and is becoming more assertive, uh, being more willing to strike down laws that Congress has enacted. Uh, in terms of the personalities of the justices and who's kind of really famous in history, it really is Holmes and Brandeis. The, the uh, other members of the court at that time don't really shine out. Uh, in part, it's because Holmes and Brandeis have this incredibly evocative way of writing, the, you know, shouting fire in a crowded theater, uh, clear and present danger, the phrases that we've mentioned from Schenck, uh, are really ones that do ring through history. And that's part of the reason that we remember Holmes, in addition to, you know, his individual contributions to the law. So uh, we're going to learn more about Oliver Wendell Holmes next and, and about his own biography and how it may have affected the thoughts that he brought to this case. Let's watch. The Civil War affected Holmes with an understanding that a nation could indeed be at peril and that you had to strain every part of the national fabric to preserve the country. In a very short time after he joined the uh, 20th Regiment uh, as a uh, a first lieutenant. He was engaged in the Battle of Ball's Bluff. And as he says in uh, his uh, diary entry here, he was shot from the side and uh, the bullet went through the fleshy part of his chest directly across his chest and exited it out the other side. Uh, the bullet ended up in his clothing and the surgeon gave it to him afterwards. His next significant Civil War activity was the Battle of Antietam when uh, he and his regiment and a couple of other regiments were suddenly surrounded by uh, Confederate troops led by uh, Stonewall Jackson and uh, Holmes was shot in the uh, fleshy part of the shoulder and the neck. The bullet again uh, missed any vital organs or any uh, vital blood vessels and uh, his family learned of it when they received a telegram from uh, a, an army surgeon named Leduc who said uh, Captain Holmes wounded, shot through the neck, 
thought not mortal at Keatesville, Keatesville being a town in Maryland. Holmes had a severe case of what I believe to be survivor's guilt. That is, the conflict that's in the, the mind when one says, I'm glad that I survived, but I don't deserve to have survived where so many other people have died. The very end of his life, when Felix Frankfurter arranged for new, newly in, inaugurated President Franklin D. Roosevelt to come and see Holmes, uh, Roosevelt is said to have said to Holmes, what, what advice can you give me? And Holmes said, follow what the soldier does, form your battalions and fight. So here we have the justice who is assigned to write the opinion in this case as a Civil War twice-wounded veteran who believes man's destiny is to fight. So he brings that to a case that is about draft evasion. Can you talk about the dynamics there? Well, you can imagine this is a man who has really seen the need to raise and mobilize an army and what it has meant to liberty. And he has seen the turmoil that can arise in American society twice over now. And it is extraordinary to think of someone who'd been through something like the Civil War uh, in the shaping of the United States as a country and then is really an elder statesman, as was said. He's and you know getting closer to the end of his career. He's around 70 right now. He is a revered figure in the law. And one of the great contributions he makes uh, is kind of stepping away from legal formalism to legal realism, which is just to say, let's be practical about this. Uh, Holmes says the life of the law has been not logic but experience. And so he comes at this question and says, look, I really do think this presents a real problem for the war effort. I'm not going to stop it. What about the rest of the court and their patriotic reaction to the war? A quote from historian Peter Iron says that the Supreme Court heeded the call of patriotism and enlisted it in the war. In a symbolic but very real sense, the justices hung up their black robes and donned the khaki uniforms of American soldiers. Were they in the Congress all feeling that it was their patriotic duty to support this war? Uh, I think they were. So one of the things that, as we were saying about these being sort of pioneering First Amendment cases, is that none of them, almost none of them, are decided on behalf of the people who are bringing First Amendment challenges. So most of the people who bring those cases to the Supreme Court end up going to jail. Um, Some of them end up trying to skip out of the country um, to avoid their their wartime sentences. One of the most famous uh, is Bill Haywood, who was uh, radical labor leader who um, is given 20 years under the Espionage Act, uh, and he ends up fleeing to Russia and kind of hiding out with the Bolsheviks. Um, so there is a sense during the First World War that everyone needs to be mobilized on behalf of the war. And I think if you look at the Supreme Court's records, they understood themselves. They might not have articulated it that way, but they understood themselves as being in some way part of that national effort. And I think it's important to remember that it's often said of military generals that they're fighting the last war. Um, Well, for someone like Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Civil War was a living memory. And for many Americans at this moment, it was uh, a living memory to them. It was sort of Vietnam to us, right, about a 50-year time span. Um, And so they really are thinking about what uh, social dislocation looks like, what the experience of total war is like. Um, And they actually have some very present memory of that. Although one thing that is very interesting is, as committed as Holmes is in Shank, Uh, Later in 1919, he starts to get off the train. 
uh, and dissents for the first time in one of these cases, and I think is increasingly coming to the conclusion that his critics of Schenck uh, are right, and that he has gone too far in that opinion, starts to pull back on uh, the doctrine in his mind on how far the government can go in punishing expression like this. Well, there's some suggestion that there was a colleague of his in the federal courts, a judge with a very colorful name of Learned <laughs> Hand, uh, who was some of an influence on his thinking. We're going to learn more about that in just a few minutes, but I want to go back to phone calls. Let's take a call next from Neil, who is in Gallatin Gateway, uh, and you are on the air. Hi. I'd like to uh, talk about the credibility of Holmes by the fact that uh, it just has been pointed out he changed his mind, uh, you know, uh, in, in this, uh, in the shape decision, and then reversed himself within a few years, just simply changed his mind. What does that have to say about the Supreme Court as to precedents and the value of prior decisions? And You know, isn't it just simply a political organization that really is not the, a viable third branch of the United States government, a court? Tom Goldstein. Well, I do think that Holmes, if he was available to talk to us, would say that he doesn't really think he radically changed his mind, and that is that the court went too far in saying that a clear and present danger just meant that there was some risk that the war effort would be undermined. And Holmes ultimately concluded that you can't put somebody in jail for 10 or 20 years for expressing their view that you shouldn't have a draft, for example. As to the question of the courts more broadly, there is this notion of stare decisis and of stability. But when it comes to the Constitution, so the First Amendment is the beginning of the Bill of Rights, it's in the Constitution, what the Supreme Court has said is, look, if we believe we got it wrong in a decision, the only people who can fix that problem are us, because Congress can't overturn the decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. And so the justices have been more willing to come back to earlier cases, as they did with Shank, uh, some 40-some years later, and revisit that and say, look, I actually think that the law and the Constitution means something different from what my predecessor said. Up next is Rob watching us in Dillon, Colorado. Hi, Rob, you're on. Hi, yes. How are you guys tonight? We're great, thanks. Um, first, a, a, a two-part question. Uh, Shank, is that a, uh, a German last name? Okay, and what's your second question? Um, how does... Freedom of speech, i.e., um, the shank, what shank began, how does that apply to today when you, uh, when you get into tabloids, tabloid media, or texting and bullying and the kids? How is free speech protected today? For instance, the Polish uh, Catholic priest who came out as a homosexual, and um, this, this is not an American issue now, it's a world issue, I guess, uh, of, of speech as, a, as an issue. So the Catholic, Polish Catholic priest who uh, said that the Catholic Church is riddled with, with homosexual people, humans, that uh, can't marry um, and are, are suppressed, so they act on, they abuse other people because they're being abuse. All right, Rob, I'm going to jump in, taking us a bit far afield here with uh, an international discussion on the Catholic Church. But do you know anything about Charles Holmes' nationality, and does it matter in this case? Was he a Charles German? Schenk. Schenk, excuse me, yeah. Charles Schenk. Um, was he a German-American? I believe he may have been of German ancestry. I mean, he was a citizen of the United States, is my understanding, mm -hmm. but I, I actually don't know about his ancestry. I believe that he had some German ancestry. Yeah, the 
And on the question of, you know, what does it mean with the First Amendment, just to pause briefly, when it comes to other forms of restriction, it's another illustration of how it is that we don't have an absolute First Amendment so that you can sue someone and the courts will enforce a judgment, for example, of libel and slander. So there are a lot of different ways in which people's reputations can be protected against other people's speech. And there are a lot of debates about free speech all over the world and different provisions of different human rights, um, uh, different constitutions, different statutes, and free speech is protected very differently in different countries at different periods of time, as uh, we saw in the early 20th century with Schenck. Next up is Pat in Keyport, New Jersey. Hi, Pat. Hi. I'm, my question, based on what I've heard so far, is um, regarding the subsequent impact of this case. Is there any reason to believe that it contributed to the decision to co- effectively close our borders in the mid to late 1920s? Was, did this case have any impact on that? Thank you. That's a great question. So one of the really important shifts that comes out of the First World War is that before the war, you had had mass immigration into the United States. It peaks in about 1913, 1914. And then in the early 1920s, the United States decides basically to swing the gates shut and keeps them shut for about 60 years. So there's a quota system put in place. It's a heavily discriminatory quota system that really favors people from Western Europe um, and uh, tries to restrict people from other parts of the world. Um, So did the Schenck case in particular influence immigration restriction? I think that might be um, a direct connection that we can't make. But I do think that the perception of radicals as being threatening and coming from other parts of the world really matters. And one of the big questions that does come out of the war years is, what is the difference between being a citizen and being an immigrant? And do non-citizens actually have the same rights as American citizens when it comes to free speech um, and when it comes to a whole host of other rights that are being restricted during the war? So that's a very powerful debate, and that's definitely part of the context of Schenck. And next up is Joan watching us in Fort Myers, Florida. Hi, Joan. Hi there. Um, I have a quick two-parter. I was wondering if uh, when conscription was was pushed and based and all that, if uh, any mention was made out of attacks on American, whether commercial shipping or American warships. And the other part is, was this by any chance when the concept of the conscientious objector uh, came, came about, or was that an earlier thing? Well, on the shipping front, so that was one of the great issues that really pushes the United States into war. You'd had German submarine warfare um, that had uh, probably the most famous incident is the Lusitania, in which the Germans fired on a ship in 1915 that was uh, a British ship, but was carrying uh, many Americans. They were killed. The Germans said it's because they were carrying munitions. In fact, it turns out they were carrying munitions. Um, But that was hugely controversial. And so submarine warfare had been restricted for a while. But uh, in early 1917, the Germans uh, opened unrestricted submarine warfare again. And that's one of the reasons that the United States really uh, begins to mobilize for war. And it's one of Wilson's stated stated issues. So remind me the second part of the question. Uh, I can't because I didn't write it down. I'm sorry to that caller. Um, 
No, sorry. Yeah, no. we're going to move on to <laughs> Sam and Anna. Oh, this was no conscientious objectors. Oh, right, that is. Right, right. You're right. Thank so you. conscientious objectors also were uh, were very controversial in this moment, but it is the beginning of a real national conversation about uh, conscientious objecting. You've had some of that conversation before, uh, particularly in terms of Quakers earlier on, but um, but who gets to be a conscientious objector, whether it's religious, political identity, how you would make those distinctions is, is a big issue in World War One. Thanks for saving the day for that call. Yes. <laughs> Next is Sam Abilene, Kansas. Uh, yes. Uh, I'd like to have you clarify. I mean, uh, the Constitution gives the government the right to maintain an army and a navy. But there's nothing that's mentioned in there that gives them the right to involuntary service in the armed forces. And I was drafted in 1968, but uh, and the president has the right to mobilize in case of invasion or rebellion, but it doesn't say uh, an act of war. If they Congress declares war, how does the draft any different than you know protected by all the other? Uh, right you have under the Constitution. Thanks so much. Well, I think that the what the courts have concluded is that between Congress's power to raise an army and the president's power to mobilize it, that given the historic traditions, uh, conscription, the draft, is part of that, that it's not slavery in the sense that that has been understood, that it would be barred by uh, you know, the fourth, 14th and 15th Amendments, the, um, uh, any of the restrictions that come out of the Civil War era involving slavery. And so the courts basically were pretty practical about this and said, you know, we think this is the only way you really could raise an army of the size that we need when we have to fight the Germans and we have to fight uh, allied uh, enemy powers that are allied with Germany in World War I. And so uh, they were willing to allow it to happen. Although I would say that there's also a lot of effort to make conscription seem voluntary. Um, and historians talk about World War I as sort of being a, a war of coercive voluntarism, <laughs> if you can put that phrase together. Um, and what that meant was that this, uh, you actually needed people to volunteer to be conscripted, which is to say they had to show up to their registration boards. Most of those registration boards were actually staffed by local volunteers simply because uh, the government had neither legitimacy to really enforce this from above, but I think more importantly, they actually didn't have the ability to do it without, uh, without volunteers on the ground participating. So as I mentioned earlier, the, the, Oliver Wendell Holmes was engaged in a philosophical discussion with a colleague in the federal courts, Judge Learned Hand, about the rights uh, of free speech and what its limitations should be. Who was Judge Learned Hand? Judge Learned Hand is probably the most famous judge in the United States not to make it onto the Supreme Court. <laughs> he was an extremely influential Court of Appeals judge uh, regarded as the intellectual equal of really any judge of the era. And he did have some very pointed decisions in response to Shank that suggested that the standard ought to be uh, more protective of free speech than Holmes was willing to in Shank. And we know that in June 1918, seven months before the Supreme Court heard the Shank case, uh, that he and uh, Justice Holmes had uh, communication about that. We're going to learn more about that by returning to Harvard and hearing about uh, this co famous conversation and how it may have influenced or not Judge, uh, Justice Holmes' thinking.
It was the end of the term in June of 1918. Holmes traveled with his wife and uh, they went through New York. After a while, Holmes got up and went walking through the train and came across Learned Hand, who was a district court judge in New York. Holmes sat down to talk with Hand and they began to discuss the question of the limits of free speech in wartime. Hand did not persuade Holmes, and the conversation ended, and a few days later, Hand, from his vacation home in Vermont, uh, wrote to Holmes and uh, tried to uh, explain what he was uh, trying to say. He says, we must be tolerant of opposite opinions or varying opinions, by the very fact of our incredulity of our own. In other words, we can't be sure that we're right, so we should be tolerant of the other fellow, because he may be right, although we at the moment think he's wrong. Well, two days later, Holmes, Holmes wrote back to Hand, in essence said, you have some very strong points, but if you really believe that you're right, you go ahead and act on your belief. In the letter, he refers to vaccination. Namely, if you're in the middle of an epidemic and people have to be vaccinated, you enforce the vaccination, whether or not people think it's right or wrong. Translated, that means if the peril to the society is so great, we must, under those circumstances, disregard the ordinary tolerance for contrary views, because we have to save the society. A look at some of the uh, hope for influences on Justice Holmes' thinking on First Amendment cases. So the case goes to the Supreme Court in early 1919. The decision came down in March. Uh, what's the timetable for the hearing of the argument and the decision process? Well, uh, it was a, you know, obviously a very significant case. So what had happened is that the justices actually had before them an earlier case in which Holmes has said that he was opposed to upholding the conviction under the Espionage Act. And so uh, at that point, it's thought that there was a leak, maybe from Brandeis back to Wilson, Brandeis being newly appointed, and the administration pulled that prosecution. And it was the Shank case that came to the justices for the first time to be actually decided. And so in relatively short order, uh, after the oral argument, the justices concluded that they were unanimous, and uh, Holmes was assigned the opinion. And so then we did get the Eugene Debs case. We got a total of four different cases in, in relatively short order. And it was in the fourth one, in Abrams, that, sh that uh, Holmes started to express real doubts about how far the government was going and whether it was kind of running wild with this notion of clear and present danger. So it was a 9-0 decision against Schenck and for the United States government. There were four basic questions the court was asked to decide in this case. First of all, should Charles Schenck's conviction be overturned? The answer to that was? No. Are Charles Schenck's political statements protected by the First Amendment? Uh, they are... Uh, protected speech in the sense that they are expression, but they are not going to be protected by the Constitution. Are there different standards for freedom of speech during peacetime and war? Yes, Holmes does end up saying that this is actually a very important factor in the decision, and that is 
the government's heightened interest in this very specific period of time. And it relates, as we said, to his own personal experience as a soldier in the Civil War. And fourth and finally, is the Espionage Act constitutional? And it was. The justices said that, uh, particularly as applied here, given that his speech was a clear and present danger, that is to say, it caused a risk. They didn't really mean that in very, very tough terms, uh, of undermining the, the war effort, uh, that it was constitutional to put him in jail for it. If you're going to read any of the decisions in the 12 cases we've selected, you might start by trying the decision in this case. You can find it on C-SPAN's website at cspan.org, landmark cases. It's a very brief decision, isn't it? It is. Holmes was not a man for a lot of words. He just used good ones. He is just an extremely powerful uh, writer. Each phrase has enormous meaning, and that's why... Uh, reading Holmes' opinions or reading books of his letters actually are fascinating because he was just such an interesting uh, person and had such extraordinary prose. And here's an example using those two phrases we've been referring to all evening that have made their way into uh, really the broader American lexicon. We admit that in many places and in ordinary times, the defendants in saying all that was said in the circular would have been within their constitutional rights. The most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. The question in every case is whether the words used are in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger. So what's uh, significant about that that you're hearing? Well, I think the claim, as you said, in that sort of fourth point that you raised, which is, that war is different from peace. And one of the really interesting things that happens with the Espionage Act, um, and partly due to uh, some of Holmes's own thinking, um, partly due to other people really articulating a kind of recognizable civil liberties view for the first time. This is really when those phrases um, enter the the national lexicon. Um, Is that... In the end, it is concluded that many of these wartime laws, though they stay on the books, really shouldn't be enforced during peacetime. Um, so the Justice Department itself in 1919 has a big debate. You know, they've, We've been in the war. They've got all these cases coming through the pipeline under things like the Espionage and Sedition Act. And the question is, well, what are we going to do with all of these cases? Are we going to keep going? Um, and they do to some degree. But uh, for, for 1919, they sort of say no peacetime really is different from wartime, and we're going to take a step back and look at this. I want to go back to calls. Next up is a call from Tom in Clinton, Connecticut. Hi, Tom. What's your question? Uh, The question is uh, for Mr. Goldstein. Mr. Goldstein, can you give some background on the lawyers that argued for Schenck? And secondly, um, did publications at the time uh, rally behind Schenck or more towards the government? Thanks. If you'd answer the lawyer question, would you talk about the media at the time? Sure. Sure. So, Shanks, uh, the the lawyers involved for the United States, the United States government has the Solicitor General's office now. And so there are a group of specialized lawyers that represent the federal government just before the Supreme Court. And that's uh, an outgrowth of the notion that where originally you would have just lawyers from the Attorney General's office in the Supreme Court, they really did need a set of specialists. And then even in the period of time uh, that we're talking about in the earlier part of the 20th century, there were a group of lawyers that were radical lawyers, progressive lawyers, uh, and they were very actively involved in litigating all of these cases. And so this was really a cause celebrity in in that community, and so they were heavily involved in in taking the question up to the Supreme Court. And what about the newspapers at the time? 
So, well, when the Shane case first came up, before it was a Supreme Court case, it really got very little notice at all because there were lots of these prosecutions going on. Um, but in the end, you know, opinion tended to fall out actually uh, similarly to the way that you were describing um, sort of the splits within lawyers, which is to say that uh, radical publications, publications like The Nation or The New Republic, they were beginning to adopt this kind of civil liberties language really to object um, to the prosecutions, particularly when they were aimed at political radicals. Uh, but mainstream opinion was very, very much in support of the suppression of this kind of dissenting opinion, um, at least in 1919. Next up, Gary in Titusville, Florida. Hi, Gary. Hi. Uh, um, my question is, and it can be uh, to either person on stage, uh, during peace times, um, um, when there's not a clear and and uh, present danger, yeah, present danger um, during um, political campaigns. When did we start having free speech zones? It seems to be an oxymoron. And is it legal? Thank you. So the law is developed in lots of different parts of the First Amendment, and what the caller is talking about is that around political campaigns, around uh, conventions, you can have people who want to protest. And so the question is, will the government exclude the protesters? And the balance that's been drawn by the courts is that you're going to have to create some place for protesters to be able to say what they want to say and communicate their message without unduly interfering with the political campaign that's going on, the convention that's going on. And so that is uh, you know, developed over the, in the law over a long period of time. Uh, it's relatively uncontroversial right now that it's a way of what we do in the First Amendment is really balance two different kinds of speech there because the convention is a form of political speech, the protest is a uh, form of political speech, and we're trying to have that marketplace of ideas to let both happen. Scott is in Stevensville, Michigan. Hi, Scott. Uh, hello. I'd just like to ask an open-ended question out of respect for the intellect of your um, panel there. Um, it, in the uh, hypothetical that the uh, Edward Snowden would be returned back to the United States, uh, it was already stated that he'd be charged with espionage. Uh, Michael, and his defense was uh, the Federal Whistleblowers Act. I'd like to kind of ask the open-ended question on how your panelists would feel and this might roll out if the Supreme Court were to take his case. Sure. So this isn't really going to be a question of free speech, uh, even though Snowden is saying, look, I had to get information out, I was expressing myself, I was involved with the press. Uh, we're talking here about leaking of government documents. And so while the press might well be protected, there's a press clause uh, for the publication of information in the First Amendment, uh, this is going to be a question of the statutory law. And so the caller says, look, there's a whistleblower provisions in federal law, and then there are espionage provisions in federal law. And in the main, when you're talking about national security secrets, uh, the government is really favored here. And so releasing that information when it's so sensitive is, is going to be a crime. And uh, the government's enforcement of that rule is going to be upheld. What's really going to be at stake in Snowden, in all likelihood, is the nation's view of what it is that he did. And we have to recognize that all kinds of things in law are affected by what's happening in society. And that's just, uh, you know, played out by Shank. And that is the Supreme Court in Shank was reacting to a national mood in no small part. The country really wanted this war effort to work and was very concerned about radical influences on it. 
And you can see it in other modern eras, too. The Supreme Court would not have said that there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, for example, if the country hadn't itself moved a long way. And so that will be the question if Snowden ever comes back. What do we think of the things that he disclosed? Samuel is in Wiley, Texas. Hi, Samuel. Hey, good evening. Um, thank you for, for taking my call. Uh, my question is, um, considering the makeup of the Supreme Court justices we have today, if the case of, uh, uh, of Schmidt was to come to the Supreme Court, do you think they will rule exactly how this case was ruled in 1919? So you would have to take it out of its political context and its social context. If you say you plot the case down and it's re-argued uh, in 2015, uh, roughly 100 years later, there's no question that Shank would win. The Supreme Court uh, has gotten rid of the clear and present danger standard. It has adopted a much tougher test that we can talk about uh, for the government being able to prosecute. And because there was, as was said at the very beginning, no real risk that Shank was going to cause some imminent lawless action, uh, then the government would not be allowed to criminalize what he said. In fact, it wouldn't be close. Uh, Shank would win nine to nothing today in the same way that he lost nine to nothing a hundred years ago. Well, let's go back to that time. So can either of you tell us what happened to Charles Shank when he lost 9-0 in the Supreme Court? He went to jail. Uh, he, I don't think he ended up serving the entire sentence. It was a pretty short sentence yeah. in the first place. It was just a sentence of a few months, if yeah. I recall. Yeah, um, I think he served maybe about six months of it. Right, and then he died pretty quickly, I believe. Is that right? He did die yeah. pretty quickly yeah. after the yeah. case was, was heard. So uh, we're telling you that we're partnering with the National Constitution Senator, Center on this project, and Jeffrey Rosen uh, is the president of the National Constitution Center and a Supreme Court a scholar himself. We're going to listen to him next, talking about how Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes continued to evolve his position on free speech. Let's watch. Holmes and Brandeis had their mind changed both by the uh, increasingly repressive treatment of anti-war critics, but also by Zechariah Chafee of Harvard Law School, who was a professor who wrote a famous article on free speech that Holmes and Brandeis read over the uh, summer of uh, 1919. And Chafee persuaded both of them to convert their previous opinions suppressing speech into one protecting it. It's a remarkable example of intellectual open-mindedness and a willingness to adjust your view of the Constitution in light of both new facts and new principles. And really, we can say that our modern First Amendment was created over that remarkable summer by Holmes and Brandeis. So, Mr. Rosenstein, as, as open-mindedness, our earlier caller thought it called into question Justice Holmes's credibility. Yeah, I think that uh, Professor Rosen has it pretty much right, although Holmes himself, as I said, I think would not say that he, he radically changed his view. It's true that he did read the article, and it's true that it was influential to him, but I don't think you can take it out of the context of, you know, the justices see a number of these cases, and so their views evolve as they learn more about the problems that are being confronted. And as we got further and further away from the war, it certainly became less and less apparent that we had to be so harsh uh, in reacting to these ideas when the country is founded on the idea that, as one of the first callers said, we're going to have this exchange of, of, of ideas and of thoughts, and the best ones will win out. Oh, I was just going to add that I, I do think that Holmes... He's a little bit ahead of some of the rest of the country in terms of exactly when it happens. But by the early 1920s, I think there's a really 
a sense in large swaths of the country that maybe those things have been too extreme. Maybe the Espionage Act, the Sedition Act, the Palmer raids, uh, the anti-immigrant and anti-radical sentiments of the uh, of the immediate post-war period, that maybe the United States really had gone too far. And you really get a very searching national conversation about what it means to be American, what free speech is like, what kinds of rights uh, people have in times of war and peace. And it's actually quite um, an eloquent national debate once you move away from uh, the kind of frenzy of war. Yeah, in a sense, the country got to take a breath. Right. And so did the Supreme Court. Here's a question on Twitter from Todd Perry, who says, for my AP government students, can you discuss the connection between Shank and Gitlow versus New York? Well, so we go from Shank to Gitlow to a case called Brandenburg, in which the Supreme Court evolves uh, in the legal standard that it's applying for um, uh, being able to criminalize speech particularly as it relates to criticism of the government. And so uh, Gitlow lies kind of in the middle of that evolution. And by the time we get to Brandenburg in the 1960s, you have the court saying that there has to be imminent lawless action. Uh, And uh, Gitlow comes at a time in which the court is really citing the clear and present danger standard from Holmes and Schenck Uh, very intermittently. You never really do in this period know exactly what the law is. Uh, It's a time when the Supreme Court for the first time is willing to actually strike down a law as unconstitutional. And so it marks with Gitlow really the beginning of uh, some of the defendants winning these cases. Well, we have about 14 minutes left in the program. I want to take some more calls. And then our final video will be uh, listening to modern justices and some of the discussion they have over the limits on free speech. Tom is watching us in Philadelphia, where Charles Schenck was from. Hey, Tom, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I, had a, uh, I was wondering that Schenck um, was a socialist, if I'm right, and uh, which was, I assume, even then a politically marginalized group. Um, and how much of his persecution depended on the fact that, you know, he was politically marginal? Um, did more powerful people, uh, you know, raise objections and escape prosecution? Um, and I seem to remember around World War II, though I'm not sure it happened after the world the war started. Uh, Charles Lindbergh and maybe even Henry Ford were advocates for the Germans in, at some level. So. Uh, and, you know, they were powerful people who certainly weren't prosecuted. So uh, um, so that's my question. Thanks very much. Beverly Gage. So the Socialist Party, I think it's true that they were marginal, though they were less marginal when the war began than they have been at any other moment in American history. And there really was quite a substantial socialist movement in the United States. Um, what really made someone like Schenck a target is the fact that once the United States declared war, the Socialist Party uh, held an emergency convention that where they asked, are we going to continue to oppose the war? We know that these rather draconian laws are on the books. We know that this will marginalize us from certain kinds of American opinion. And they actually decide to continue to oppose the war. And that's when uh, someone like Schenck really becomes targeted. So there's a very critical shift there in uh, in 1917. Um, as far as the Second World War goes and this question of um, either people on the right as opposed to the left or people with more power in society, um, whether they're going to be prosecuted, um, you do get a very, very interesting set of debates 
before the United States actually enters the Second World War um, that look back to the Espionage and Sedition Act. Um, In 1940, the United States passes what's known as the Smith Act, which was essentially um, a strengthening of the Sedition Act, but that could be used in times of peace. Um, So a lot of people who had wanted the Espionage and Sedition Acts of the First World War to continue into peacetime, that doesn't really happen then, are big advocates of the Smith Act, and that really does uh, put that law on the books. As you say, it's not used to uh, to go after Charles Lindbergh and Henry Ford, though it is used um, to go after um, certain uh, pro-Nazi groups in the United States for fascist organizations, but in particular, in the end, uh, to go after American communists. Schenck versus the United States is our fifth in a series of 12 historic Supreme Court cases. We've also gathered them together in a book that we're making available and you can find out more about how to order it it's just 8.95 we'll get it out to you very quickly it is written by tony morrow and it is a background on each one of the cases both the historical context of the time and the legacy of those cases again cspan.org slash landmark cases and it'll tell you how you can get it quickly to your home next is jeff watching us in carteret new jersey hi jeff you are on go ahead please Hi, thanks, Eastman, and thank you for running this series. Very interesting series. Thank you. Uh, I got two questions for our panel there. Uh, I guess the first is: Can you trace the lineage of the Espionage Act back through uh, the, the restrictions the Lincoln administration placed on free speech during the Civil War, and I guess the Adams administration in the Alien and Sedition Acts back in the 18th century? And what sort of prosecutions came of? Um, the Espionage Act during World War II, for example, the internment of Japanese citizens, could they have been used in that case or later on during the Vietnam period? Thanks so much. Well, uh, I'll take the second question and maybe throw the the first one over to Tom. Um, So one of the things that's really interesting about the Second World War and the way that um, people in national government look at the Second World War is that they really actually don't want to do the things that they were doing in the First World War, which is to say the raids, um, some of the press censorship, um, some of the free speech restrictions that were in place during the First World War. Um, there's actually sort of a concerted effort not to do some of those things. Um, on the other hand, of course, you get uh, Japanese internment, Um, You do get the prosecutions of some political radicals during these years. And so you see variations on a theme. A lot of the precedents of the First World War, for instance, German internment becomes something that people look back to when they're uh, beginning Japanese internment. But other other precedents really are rejected. Um, And Franklin Roosevelt in particular and J. Edgar Hoover, um, who is in charge of these things to some degree uh, by the Second World War, Um, They really want to not only avoid some of the mistakes, but in particular avoid some of the public criticism that was ultimately directed at the government for some of these prosecutions. The other question was about tracing the lineage back to the Civil War in Lincoln and Adams and the Alien and Sedition Act. And the caller is exactly right. uh, There was a national history in which the government had gotten the authority to clamp down on uh, expressions of opposition, of Uh, We had internal dissent. In fact, of course, we had had the Civil War. And so uh, I think the courts and the Congress were relatively comfortable with the idea that these kinds of restrictions in a time of war were not undue restrictions on free speech. Carl in Millsboro, Delaware. Hi, Carl. What's your question? 
Hi, Susan. Uh, thanks for another quality broadcast. I, I just first wanted to say that was a really good insight earlier about Edward Snowden, that our attitudes as a society are going to affect uh, his prosecution. But I guess just to pick up on the last caller, uh, if your guests could take uh, the Schenck decision forward, and if they see any parallels to the Patriot Act, uh, in terms of suspension of First Amendment and Fourth, Sixth, maybe Eighth Amendment, uh, protections we have. Thank, Thank you. you. Tom Goldstein. So while the courts have become a lot more protective of the First Amendment, uh, there are other areas of the law in which they have reacted to war times or kind of war times by apparently limiting civil liberties. And so when you look at something like the Patriot Act, it's not going to have free speech restrictions in it. Uh, I think the government would have a very, very hard time justifying limiting political expression now, even in direct times of war. We've just gotten past that era. We really do believe in the marketplace of ideas. But in the name of national security and presidential powers, the courts are much more deferential. And it's actually very hard to get into court to challenge any of those measures, uh, mostly because people don't know if they're being spied on in that way. But also there's just a great reticence of the court to involve themselves in questions that are very technological and can involve the risk of terrorism and the like. So the general theme that the courts are more respectful of the government in times of war and more willing to restrict civil liberties is true in a context like the Patriot Act now, just like it was in the context of free speech at the time of Schenck. Our prior caller had mentioned in his question Japanese internment during World War II. And that's a good segue to tell you that next week's case is going to be on Korematsu. We're going to fast forward to World War II and to a Japanese-American who protested his internment all the way to the Supreme Court. Next caller, as we talk about this case, though, Schenck case versus United States, is Steve in Mystic, Connecticut. Hi, Steve. You're on the air. Yes. Hi. Um, thank you very much, and I appreciate the program. Uh, my question, I actually have two questions. Um, how do you see the uh, this case being similar or different uh, to the, uh, the the Debs and the Abrams case? And um, just, you know, I don't know if there's a real connection between this and uh, the Sacco-Vanzetti case, because I know that um, both Sacco and Vanzetti were uh, draft dodgers who went to Mexico during the war. Uh, and I was curious as to whether this had any any bearing on the outcome of that case. Thanks very much. Do you want to take the Debs and Abrams? Sure. So these were Debs, Abrams, and Shank were three of the four cases that came before the justices over the course of 1919. And there isn't a radical difference between them. Eugene Debs was doing somewhat different things. Uh, but the general notion in them uh, was that there was an effort to undermine uh, people mobilizing for the war, supporting the war, without some direct imminent threat that someone was going to cause violence and the like. And the question in all of the cases was, you know, can the government prohibit speech in that circumstance? And they're mostly notable for the fact that Holmes does seem to shift between Shank at the beginning and Abrams at the end of the year uh, in how far he's willing to go. But the cases are all the very first set of four challenges to the constitutionality of the Espionage Act, which is significant in and of itself, and also for what it means for the birth of First Amendment free speech law. Sacco and Vanzetti. Right. So Sacco and Vanzetti, it's great that you brought up that case because I think in many ways that's really the case that continues this conversation um, into the 1920s. So Sacco and Vanzetti were not prosecuted for a political crime per se. They were prosecuted for 
um, having killed a payroll guard. Um, but this became, their case uh, became not only a national sensation, but really a global sensation, um, in part because it was understood that their political radicalism, as you said, they were anarchists, they were Italian-Americans, that that had somehow biased justice against them. Um, it's also notable that this was in Boston, where many of these figures uh, that we've been hearing about, Learned Hand, Zechariah Chafee, etc., uh, were uh, were in fact situated. So there's a very interesting legal conversation going on up there. Uh, but at any rate, Sacco and Vanzetti really does become um, the case where a lot of these debates continue um, into the 1920s, and then they are ultimately executed in 1927. So even though, once again, you're having these debates, um, the thrust of the courts and the thrust of the government is still to, uh, to um, sort of go against uh, the radicals who are challenging these laws. In today's modern court, uh, Justice Antonin Scalia was part of the majority uh, that upheld the right to burn the American flag. In our final clip, we're going to have uh, a bit of Justice Scalia talking about that decision along with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Let's listen. I mean, you can be using your First Amendment rights and it can be abominable that you are using your First Amendment rights. I'll defend your right to use it. You're right to use it, but I will not defend the appropriateness of the manner in which you're using it now. Well, I'm sure that, that can be very wrong. Justice Scalia um, was praised by some, criticized by others for his decision in the flag burning case. Now, I imagine that you thought the act itself was reprehensible. Repre I would have sent that guy to jail if I was king. But, <laughs> Yeah. But by your ruling, he had the right to burn the flag. Yes, that's what the First Amendment means. You, you have the right to express your contempt for the government. That doesn't mean it was a good thing for him to do that in that manner, by, by burning a symbol that meant so much to, uh, to so many other people. But he, he had the right to do it. So two of the justices on today's Supreme Court talking about the evolution of free speech in society. You said that this Schenck case was really the, an opening salvo on our modern, what is our modern discussion on the right to speech. Uh, where are we today? We're in a much more protective place for free speech. We like ideas. Now, some people think it goes too far because it protects, for example, the right to make campaign contributions uh, cases like the Citizens United case can be very controversial. But in general, what the Supreme Court says, if you want to communicate with people, we're going to protect you. And if your ideas are bad, then they're going to be rejected. We are not afraid of what you have to say. Beverly Gage, what is the legacy of Schenck versus United States? So I think Schenck did start this conversation about the First Amendment and what it was going to mean. Um, but I also think that Schenck sort of symbolizes a relatively dark moment in American history, which is to say it's a moment when uh, the federal government really mobilizes at a lot of levels for the first time to uh, begin to conduct surveillance um, and to begin to actually contain American opinion. And so I think we've seen both of these uh, trends continue. Well, thanks to Beverly Gage and Tom Goldstein for being with us in our discussion of Shank versus U.S. in C-SPAN's Landmark uh, Cases series. We appreciate you being here for our callers, and thanks to those of you at home who are watching and for contributing your questions and ideas to the discussion.
Our Landmark Cases series continues next week. We'll look back at a 1944 Supreme Court case involving the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II by the U.S. government. The case is Korematsu versus the United States, and that's live next Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern. You can learn more about C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series, which explores the human stories and constitutional dramas behind some of the Supreme Court's most significant decisions. Go to cspan.org slash landmark cases. From the website, you can find C-SPAN Landmark Cases book that features background, highlights, and the legal impact of each case. Written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow and published by C-SPAN in cooperation with CQ Press. Landmark Cases is available for $8.95 plus shipping. That's at cspan.org slash landmark cases.